This is Medieval Death Trip for Tuesday, February 14th, 2023, episode 99, A Valentine's Battle for the Kingship of Man. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Today, we're returning to the Chronicle of Man and the Sudres, aka the Chronica Regum Maniae et Insularum, or the Chronicle of the Kings of Man and the Isles, aka the Manx Chronicle, a 13th century history of the Isle of Man. We've previously heard from this text in episode 44, concerning the turnover of the Kings of Man, and 75, concerning more challenges to the throne of man. And today, we're continuing on with yet more conflict over the throne of man, culminating in a great Valentine's Day battle. In those previous episodes, we followed the story from the year 1066 up to 1158, in the process tracking the careers of the kings of man, a great number of whom came to their thrones and or left their thrones through violence and betrayal. Here's an attempt at a relatively brief recap of that history. Before 1066, we have practically no good histories of the place. The rule of the Isle of Man seems to have passed back and forth between the Irish and the Norse powers around the Irish Sea. Then, in 1066, the first main protagonist of the Chronicle of Man shows up, Godred Crovan, or Crowan, a name that has both Norse and Irish connections. He's a survivor of the Battle of Stamford Bridge, where Harold Hardrada's attempt to take the English crown from Harold Godwinson was quashed. Godred Crovan, having fought on the losing Norwegian side, flees the mainland and finds safe harbor at the court of another man named Godred, Godred Citrixen, the king of the Isle of Man. The refugee seems to have been hosted well there for four years, until King Godred dies. His son Fingal takes the throne, but apparently Godred Crovan felt that one Godred should rightly be followed by another, and invaded the island with an armed force. Actually, he did this three times, the first two times being repulsed by the Manxmen, but routing them on the third attempt through some sneaky troop deployments. He then becomes the King of Man and the founder of a lasting, if occasionally interrupted, and often quite bloody dynasty. What happened to the dethroned Fingal, by the way, is unknown. The Chronicle is silent. It's likely that he went into exile in Dublin, or Maybe exile isn't the right word, as it appears that his father, Godred, uh, actually took over the throne of Dublin shortly before he died, and that the royal family were probably living in Dublin at the time of the elder Godred's death, and the absence of their presence on the Isle of Man may well have emboldened Godred Crovan to usurp the throne. He didn't actually have to depose this new absentee king, he just had to intimidate the local army enough to get them to change loyalties, which he did. Oh, and then he went on to invade Dublin and take control there as well. So Fingal did evidently get fully displaced at some point, though his precise fate is not recorded. And I just want to pause our historical recap right here to consider that for a moment. On the one hand, it feels slightly remarkable. We're not in the deep dark ages here. This is the late 11th century in the British Isles. Generally speaking, this is an age of historians. We have decent documentation of the Anglo-Saxon world. We have Norse sagas recording their history. Ireland has its chronicles as well. So for the identities of the kings of Dublin to be so murky is a bit surprising. 
You'd expect that even in the absence of rich narrative, we'd have plenty of solid dynastic timelines of who ruled when and who they were related to. On the other hand, this kind of shouldn't be that surprising, and it's a reminder of just what the raw material of medieval history is and how incomplete it can be. We live today with the luxury of so much amazing synthesis of diverse sources that it's hard to imagine not knowing something as significant as who was king at a certain time in the past. You go to Wikipedia and open the chronological list of kings of Dublin, and it seems so neatly factual and solid, until you start looking closely and notice quite a few question marks in the dates and qualifiers like possibly and may have and appears to have been showing up in the notes. For anyone intrigued, I recommend opening up the Wikipedia article on Fingal under the title Fingal MacGoffred. That's three words, Fingal, F-I-N-G-A-L, Mac, and Goffred, G-O-F-R-A-I-D. Read through that and soak in how much of it is quite speculative reconstruction and how much sheer historical work has been put in even to get us up to this level of uncertainty. That's really all to say that we shouldn't take our historians or our historical record for granted. Because these issues don't end with the Middle Ages. Anyone who's worked on the history of something with spotty documentation will understand the challenge of figuring out what happened to Fingal, son of Godred. Local histories or family histories, uh, even in an era of daily newspapers and diaries found in attics, uh, these are often full of sometimes surprising holes. Sometimes key information is just unrecorded, or you can't tell if the John mentioned in this one letter is the same John who shows up on this list of club members, or if the Mr. Jones who's recorded as donating this heirloom is the father, or the grandfather, or the son, or maybe even an uncle or nephew of the family. Today, we live so awash in data that it becomes very easy to just believe that everything can be known, or indeed, that someone else somewhere has already done the work to make it known, to make the information organized and findable. Those kinds of assumptions lie at the heart of so much conspiratorial thinking. If some information can't be found, then it can't be because we just don't know it or it wasn't recorded. It must be because someone is deliberately hiding it from us and keeping it secret. If there's a gap in some major historical figure's biography, it must be concealing some covert or nefarious activity. It's hard to accept that in a digital age, there can still be significant gaps in the record. Then again, we are also sitting here at the dawn of the age of artificial intelligence, and perhaps the next era of historical analysis will be in the hands of the robots. Maybe they will provide the unending, omniscient synthesis of daily data that will allow the reconstruction of almost any moment from the dawn of social media onwards. Anyway, my point here is just to call attention to how simple recaps and timelines of history, like the ones I'm giving you right now, often mask points of ambiguity and doubt and imprecision, and offer instead this veneer of simple, factual certainty. Uh, and I'm not saying don't trust history or historians, or there's no such thing as truth. Um, but there is this absolutist streak in a lot of our discourse that wants to assert facts as either absolutely unquestionable or absolutely false and debunked that I don't think is healthy for improving our understanding of the world. 
And it's a problem on both sides. People wielding scientific facts as bludgeons in arguments against anti-scientific claims. That absolutist rhetoric might win you a battle against misinformation, but ultimately, I think it loses us the war because it creates this intellectual or rhetorical climate where people start believing that every scientific theory is a house of cards where if you can cast doubt on any single fact in it, then the whole thing can be rejected, which isn't actually how scientific reasoning operates, and it certainly isn't how historical interpretation works. And now, let us resume the course of our perhaps not absolutely reliable, but nonetheless broadly reasonable, history of the rulers of the Isle of Man. When Godred Crovin dies, his eldest son, Lagman, or Lawman, takes the throne and seems to be almost immediately challenged by his younger brother, Harold. Lagman ends up capturing, blinding, and mutilating Harold, rendering him unfit for kingship in the eyes of the culture. He then comes to regret this action, gives up his crown, and goes to Jerusalem to repent, where he dies. Now, the next in line is the youngest son of Godred, Olav. But when Lagman vacates the throne, Olav is still a child and living at the court of the English king. So what happens is that different foreign powers basically send their own would-be kings to the island, all of whom reign, if they reign at all, for a short time before meeting a violent end. The last in this chain is slightly more successful, for a moment, uh, the Norwegian king, Magnus Barefoot, who conquers man and then dies in 1098 in his attempt to conquer Ireland. By this time, Olav is finally old enough to be coronated, and so he is brought back and becomes the king of man in 1102, restoring the royal line of Godred Crovin. Olav introduces a period of relative stability, ruling for 40 years, but nonetheless meets with an ugly end. He had four sons, Godred, Reginald, Lagman, and Harold, uh, the eldest and only legitimate son, Godred, left the country to go stay at the court of the King of Norway. In his absence, the sons of Harold, Olav's nephews, supported by Reginald, came and demanded half of the kingdom be given over to them. At the parley to settle this claim, Reginald cuts off Olav's head, ending his reign and dividing the country. That was in 1142. The next year, Godred returns from Norway with a fighting force and is welcomed by the chieftains of the Isles and was able to capture and get his revenge on his father's murderers and usurpers. Godred, son of Olav, went on to rule for nearly another 40 years, though fairly early in his reign, a Scottish nobleman, Summerled, Lord of Argyll, waged a successful war against Godred, and as a result, the kingdom of the Isles was divided between the heirs of Godred and the heirs of Summerled. And that brings us basically up to the point where today's narrative will pick up, at the end of Godred's reign in 1187, and with the fates of his sons, Reginald, Olav, and Ivar. Now, that little list of names highlights one of the challenges of keeping track of this dynastic story. Like many a medieval European dynasty, the House of Croven loves to recycle names. In this case, a little oddly, and it maybe just speaks to the power of tradition in carrying on family names. Because just think about this. Godred has named one of his sons the same name as his brother who murdered his father. You have two siblings bearing the names of an assassin and his victim. And the former Olav named two of his sons, Lagman and Harold, after the previous generation of brothers who warred with each other and left one mutilated and the other racked with shame. So, 
These dynastic names can be a bit of a stumbling block for keeping the narrative clear. Once again, here's where we're at. Old King Olav was killed by his brother Reginald, but ultimately succeeded by his son Godred. Godred is about to die here at the start of our story for today, leaving his kingdom to his son Olav, who also has a brother named Reginald, and guess which two namesakes are about to come to blows over the kingdom. And just to optimize the opportunities for confusion, another key player in today's story is a different Reginald, Reginald the Bishop of the Isles, uh, who, it turns out, is a nephew of Olav, so it is still a family name. Uh, so we'll have to keep track of Olav's interactions with these two different powerful Reginalds, his half-brother the king and the bishop his nephew. Also, on the subject of names, particularly for anyone who wants to do follow-up reading on any of these characters, our translator has gone with the more anglicized options for these names, uh, or rather the anglicized version of the Latin form of the name that's in the Chronicle. Depending on the source, these names also appear in Norse forms and sometimes Irish forms. Given that the Isle of Man was this cross-cultural nexus of Celtic and Norse and Anglo-Saxon influences and bloodlines, all of those forms would have had currency at the time. So, Godred is also Guthrother as well as Gofred. Reginald is also Rogenwalder and Ragnall, etc., etc. So, if you're browsing Manx dynasties on Wikipedia, expect to find different variations being used in different articles, depending on the context. Okay, let us go back to the year 1187 in the Chronicle of Man and the Sudris, as translated by Alexander Goss. In the year 1187, Jerusalem was captured by the pagans and the Holy Cross was carried away to Damascus. In the same year, on the 10th of November, Godred, King of the Isles, died in the island of St. Patrick in Man. In the beginning of the following summer, his body was removed to the isle called Iona. He left three sons, Reginald, Olav, and Ivar. Reginald, then a full-grown young man, was absent in the isles. Olav, yet a very young boy, resided in Man. Godred, during his life, had appointed Olav to succeed to the kingdom, for the inheritance belonged to him by right because he was born of lawful wedlock, and had commanded all the people of Man to appoint Olav king after his own death, and preserve and violate their oath of allegiance. However, after the death of Godred, the Manxmen sent their messengers to the Isles for Reginald and made him king, because he was a man of energy and of riper age. For they dreaded the weakness of Olav, for he was but a boy ten years old, and they considered that a person who, on account of his tender age, knew not how to direct himself, would be wholly incapable of governing his subjects. This was the reason why the people of Man appointed Reginald king. Here we think it well, for the benefit of our readers, to rehearse briefly something of the history of Reginald and Olav. Reginald gave his brother Olav a certain island called Lewis, which is said to be more extensive than the other islands, but thinly peopled because it is mountainous and rocky and almost totally unfit for cultivation. The inhabitants live mostly by hunting and fishing. 
Olaf took possession of this island and dwelt there, living, however, very scantily. Finding that the island could not support himself and his followers, he went frankly to his brother Reginald, who was then residing in the Isles, and spoke to him as follows. You know, my brother and king, that the kingdom of the Isles was mine by hereditary right, but as the Lord chose you for its governor, I do not grudge at you, nor am I discontented because you have been raised to the supreme dignity of king. I now therefore beg that you will allot me land somewhere in the isles sufficient for my own decent maintenance and that of my followers, for the Isle of Lewis which you gave me is unequal to my support. When Reginald had heard this, he promised to take advice on the subject and return an answer to the petition next day. When next day had dawned, and Olaf had come by summons to speak with the king, Reginald ordered him to be seized, bound, and carried in chains to William, King of Scotland, to be kept prisoner by that sovereign. This order was executed, and Olaf remained prisoner with the King of Scotland nearly seven years. In the seventh year, William, King of Scotland, died, and was succeeded by his son Alexander. Before his death, however, William gave directions for the liberation of all who were confined in his prisons. Olaf then, having his chains removed and being restored to liberty, went to man to his brother Reginald, and shortly afterwards set out with a considerable attendance of men of rank for the Shrine of St. James. Returning from the pilgrimage, he again visited his brother Reginald, by whom he was received in a friendly manner. At that time, Reginald caused his brother Olaf to marry Lawan, the daughter of a certain man of rank of Kintyre, sister to his own wife, and gave him the aforesaid island of Lewis, whither Olav, taking leave of his brother, went with his wife and dwelt there. After some days, Reginald Bishop of the Isles, successor to Bishop Nicholas, came to the Isles to visit the churches. Olav went to meet him with great alacrity and was glad of his arrival, for the bishop was a son of Olav's sister, and ordered a great banquet to be prepared. Reginald, however, said to Olav, I will not hold communication with you, brother, till the Catholic Church has canonically released you from the bonds of an unlawful marriage. The bishop added, Know you not that you lived long with the cousin of her whom you now have as wife? Olav did not deny the truth of what had been said, and acknowledged that he had long kept her cousin as a concubine. A synod, therefore, was assembled, and in it Bishop Reginald canonically separated Olav the son of Godred and Lawan his wife. Afterwards, Olav married Christina, daughter of Farquad, Earl of Ross. But the wife of King Reginald, Queen of the Isles, pained by the separation of her sister from Olav and moved by the gall of bitterness and sower of all the discord between Reginald and Olav, wrote secretly in the name of King Reginald to her son Godred, who was in the Isle of Skye, to seize and kill Olav. Godred, on receipt of this letter, collected a force and went to Lewis for the purpose of carrying out, if he could, his mother's truly wicked desires. Olav, however, entering a small boat with a few men, with difficulty avoided Godred and fled to his father-in-law, the Earl of Ross, while Godred laid waste nearly the whole island, killed a few of the inhabitants, and returned home. At that time, the Viscount of Skye, Paul, the son of Balki, whose power and energy were felt throughout the whole kingdom of the Isles, having refused to consent to the murder of Olav, 
fled from Godred, and resided as well as Olav with the Earl of Ross. After a few days, Olav and the aforesaid Viscount of Skye entered into a covenant of friendship, confirmed on either side by oath, and went together with a single vessel to Skye, where they concealed themselves for some days in secret places. They then learned from spies they had sent out that Godred was residing in a certain island, called the Island of St. John, without apprehension, with very few attendants. Upon this, assembling all their friends and acquaintances, and all who were willing to join them, they surrounded the island during the silence of deep night, bringing over five ships from the nearest point of the shore, which was two furlongs from the aforementioned island. Godred and his companions were thrown into consternation when, rising early in the morning, they saw themselves surrounded. Being armed, however, they undertook to resist manfully, but in vain. For about nine o'clock in the morning, Olav and Paul, the aforesaid Viscount, entered the island with all their force, and putting all to death who were found outside the precincts of the church, they seized Godred, mutilated, and deprived him of his eyes. Olav, however, did not give his consent to this deed, but was unable to prevent it on account of Balki, the aforesaid Viscount. This happened in the year of grace, 1223. In the following summer, Olav, taking hostages from all the chiefs of the isles, came to man with a fleet of 32 ships and put into the port of Ronaldsway. On that occasion, Reginald and Olav divided between themselves the kingdom of the isles, Man, with the title of king, being allotted to Reginald in addition to his portion. Olav, having received provisions from the people of Man, returned with his followers to the islands which formed his portion. The following year, Reginald, taking with him Alan, Lord of Galloway, and the men of Man, set out for the isles for the purpose of taking from his brother Olav the territory which he had given him, and bringing it again under his own dominion. But as the men of man were unwilling to fight against Olav and the men of the isles, for whom they had a great regard, Reginald and Alan the Lord of Galloway failed in their attempt and returned home. A short time after this, Reginald received from the people of man 100 marks under the pretense of going to the court of the Lord King of England, but he went to the court of Alan, Lord of Galloway. At the same time, he gave his daughter in marriage to the son of Alan. When the Manxmen heard of this, they were greatly incensed, and sending for Olav, appointed him king. In the year of grace, 1226, Olav recovered his inheritance, namely the kingdom of man and of the isles, which his brother Reginald had governed 38 years. Olav's reign was undisturbed for two years. In the year 1228, Olav, with all the chiefs of man and the greater part of the people, sailed to the isles. Soon after, Alan, Lord of Galloway, Thomas, Earl of Athol, and King Reginald came to man with a large army, devastated all the southern portion of the island, plundered the churches, killed all the men they could lay hands upon, and reduced the south of man almost to a wilderness. Alan then returned with his army to his own country leaving bailiffs in man to pay over to him the proceeds of the taxes upon the country. King Olav, however, returned and drove out the bailiffs and recovered his kingdom, whereupon the people of man, who had dispersed in every direction, came together again and dwelt in security. During the same year, one midnight during winter, King Reginald came unexpectedly from Galloway with five ships, 
burnt during the same night all the ships of his brother Olav, and those of all the chiefs of Man at the island of St. Patrick, and going round the country seeking to make terms with his brother, remained nearly forty days at Ronald's Way. In the interval, he won over and gathered round himself all the islanders who were in the southern part of Man. Some of them swore that they were ready to expose their lives in his cause till he should be put in possession of half the kingdom of the isles. King Olav, on the other hand, gathered together all the northern Manxmen, and acquired by his words such influence over them that their souls were but one with his. On the 14th of February, the festival of St. Valentine, Martyr, King Olav came with his followers to the place called Tynwald and waited there a short time. When Reginald approached the place and was drawing up his forces in array to give battle to his brother, Olav, with his followers, advanced to meet them, rushed suddenly forward, and scattered them like sheep. Certain wicked men, coming upon King Reginald, slew him on the spot, but without the knowledge of his brother, who was much grieved when he heard of the event, though never to the end of his life did he avenge his brother's death. Many fell on this occasion, and the southern part of man being subsequently visited and devastated by pirates, scarcely a single inhabitant was left. The monks of Russian removed the body of King Reginald to the Abbey of St. Mary of Furness, where he was buried in the place he had selected during his life. Afterwards, Olav went to the court of the King of Norway. But before his arrival, Hako, the King of Norway, had appointed a certain nobleman of the royal race, by name Husbak, son of Onmund, king over the Sodor Islands, and gave him the name of Hako. Hako went with Olav and Godred Don, son of Reginald, and a large retinue of Norwegians to the Sodor Islands. Arriving at the island named Bute, and seeking to take the castle which is on it, Hako was struck by a stone and killed, and buried in the island of Iona. In the year 1230, Olav, with Godred Don and the Norwegians, went to Man and divided between themselves, that is, Olav and Godred Don, the kingdom of Man and of the Isles. Olav received Man for his share, but Godred, going to the insular portion of the kingdom, was slain in the island of Lewis. After Godred's death, Olav held the kingdom of Man and the Isles for the remainder of his life. In the year 1237, on May 21st, died Olav, son of Godred, king of Man and the Isles, at the island of St. Patrick. He was buried in the abbey of St. Mary of Russian. Olav reigned eleven years, two during the life of his brother Reginald, and for nine years afterwards he had possession of the whole kingdom. After his death, Harold, his son, reigned in his place. Harold was fourteen years old when he began to reign, and he reigned twelve years. In the same summer in which his reign commenced, he passed over with all his chiefs to the Isles, leaving Laughlin, a relative of his, guardian of man until his return. He was received with great satisfaction by the inhabitants, who paid him every honor. So, there's the tale of the brotherly love, or lack thereof, between Olav and Reginald Godridson. Though, Maybe the psychology is more complicated than we might assume, because another little detail is that in addition to his heir, Harold, Olaf had another son, who got the throne after Harold's death, and his name was Reginald. Of course, why should we find that surprising at this point? Well, maybe only because of this. 
In the many other cases of bearing the name of a Croven family member who betrayed another, it's possible that the children were born before the betrayal took place. But Olav had his birthright usurped by Reginald while he was still a child, so he named his son Reginald, apparently after he'd gone through being sent off to Scottish imprisonment by his brother. Of course, maybe the name was part of an attempt to mend fences there in the middle part of the story, uh, of a piece with marrying his sister-in-law at his brother's behest. Maybe there's also a case study in there of names shaping destinies. Two generations of Reginalds usurp thrones, and two generations of Olavs are kind of meek, childlike innocents who get blindsided by treachery. The Chronicle of Man offers us a nice opportunity to ponder the issue of scale in medieval history. The rhetoric of Chronicles has an oddly leveling effect. A war is a war is a war. One king fighting another is a royal conflict, and their armies meet each other on the field of battle. And we have our blockbuster film images of what a grand medieval battle looks like, and we picture the commanders like Henry V proclaiming their battle speeches before ranks and ranks of troops. So, when you hear that the people in the southern part of the Isle of Man wanted one king, and those of the north wanted another, and these two factions go to war, your mind probably assumes a level of enormity to such a conflict. It's like the American Civil War, North versus South, or the English kings fighting the French. But when you're thinking of the Northern Manx and the Southern Manx, these two kingdoms at war, just pause to picture this. The Island of Man is 13 miles wide and 33 miles long, or 21 by 53 kilometers. Now, that's nothing to sneeze at. It's about 10 times the size of the island of Manhattan, for instance. You can certainly have a distinct pair of communities separated by 33 miles. But at the same time, it is also just 33 miles. Now, the actual political composition of these competing kingdoms also encompasses some of the other islands of the Irish Sea and the northwest coast of Britain. But nonetheless, in a modern scale, this is more like one small town attacking another small town or, for some localities, one suburban subdivision attacking another subdivision. Now, if we try to clarify that picture, uh, we don't have anything approaching reliable population figures for the Isle of Man for anything before the 18th century. The Venerable Bede claims that the island held about 300 families in the 8th century, and in the 1600s, we have this delightful description from A History of the Isle by William Blundell, quote, the island of man is at this day in a mean populace. It neither wanteth nor aboundeth, much less is it overburdened by its natives. All confess it to have been in ancient days and times much more populous and more fully inhabited, but neither now nor at any time heretofore was this island famed to abound with numerous natives. Their kings were truly called kings of man, but not kings of men." For if a body of six or seven thousand hereupon urgent or necessitous occasion be transported out of the island, it would, as I conceive, be so dispeopled as that their women would be compelled to practice to become Amazons and to pray to God for his assistance. End quote. So, the population of the island in Olav and Reginald's time could have been anything between 5,000 and maybe 30,000, which is a wide range 
but still fairly small by modern standards in terms of a national conflict. Now, the fighting forces likely were disproportionately large, since the rulers would have been supplementing their armies with vassals from the other isles and mercenaries from Ireland and Scotland. And where does that leave us? Well, these battles are smaller than we might picture wars between kings to be. But they could be larger than mere population size might suggest, since the armies themselves were not purely local recruits. Olav arrives with a fleet of 32 ships. How many troops would be in a fleet of that size? Well, again, the variables make that nice specific 32 ships a much more vague number than it sounds. Uh, We know of some Viking longships, for example, that carried 20 warriors and some that carried 100. Olav might be arriving with an army of 300 or 3,000. It's quite unlikely to have been 3,000, but just where in the middle of that range it falls is kind of anyone's guess. Uh, Perhaps a medieval military history expert could provide a more confident-sounding estimate, but as I understand it, for this kind of history, for these kinds of kingdoms that didn't leave us chancery records to reconstruct army expenses from, there's just not enough data to say much with certainty. Kind of like pinning down some of those dynastic questions we wondered about in the first half of this episode. Sometimes we just don't know, and we don't have any avenues for knowing more. Except maybe in actual narrative details. In the warfare in today's narrative and our earlier Isle of Man episodes, often the chronicler refers to invaders sacking a district and killing some residents, while most hide themselves away up in the hills. That doesn't really paint the image of a massive army burning its way across the plain. It sounds a bit more like a small gang of marauders riding into town and torching some buildings and stealing some food than it does Sherman's march. Indeed, uh, here's a bit of Civil War trivia relevant to this discussion and to which I have my own local connection. I'm from Memphis. Uh, Not that far from us, in Middle Tennessee, was fought the Battle of Shiloh, one of the bloodiest battles in the American Civil War involving over 100,000 troops and leaving 24,000 casualties. That's the scale of the kind of cinematic battle we usually think of when we think of a nation at war. Here in Memphis, we had the First Battle of Memphis, which was a naval engagement on the Mississippi River that was over in about two hours and brought the city under Union control. Then we have the Second Battle of Memphis. Here's how it's described by the National Park Service. Quote, At 4 a.m. on the morning of August 21st, 1864, Major General Nathan Bedford Forrest made a daring raid on Union-held Memphis, Tennessee, but it was not an attempt to capture the city, occupied by 6,000 federal troops. The raid had three objectives, to capture three Union generals posted there, to release Southern prisoners from Irving Block Prison, and to cause the recall of Union forces from northern Mississippi. Striking northwestward for Memphis with 2,000 cavalry, Forrest lost about a quarter of his strength because of exhausted horses. Surprise was essential. Taking advantage of a thick dawn fog and claiming to be a Union patrol returning with prisoners, the Confederates eliminated the sentries. Galloping through the streets and exchanging shots with other Union troops, the raiders split to pursue separate missions. One Union general was not at his quarters, and another escaped to Fort Pickering, dressed in his nightshirt. The attack on Irving Block Prison also failed when Union troops stalled the main body at the state female college. After two hours, Forrest decided to withdraw, cutting telegraph wires, taking 500 prisoners and large quantities of supplies, including many horses. End quote. 
Now, there are some reasonably large numbers there. Forrest had approximately 1,500 cavalry troops with him, and there was on the college campus something approaching a pitched battle or at least a siege with serious exchange of fire for a couple of hours. So I guess it's not ridiculous to call it the Second Battle of Memphis. But the most famous image of this battle is of kind of Confederate yahoos riding through downtown, yelling and firing into the air like bandits intimidating a one-horse town in a Hollywood western. An image enshrined in local geography in a street name you can still find downtown, General Washburn's Escape Alley, by which the nightshirt-clad officer is said to have fled his hotel at the sound of the approaching raiders. In my head, the battles of the forces of Olav and Reginald play out more like the Second Battle of Memphis than the Battle of Shiloh. There are rumbles between two rival street gangs over who gets to stand on the corners of a certain city block. Which I don't say to downplay the violence or the trauma of war. I'm sure that at the level of individual experience, being a Manx person caught between a couple hundred troops fighting each other in your village is as terrifying as a clash between armies in the tens or hundreds of thousands especially in a pre-modern world where those armies are not mechanized and are largely fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat. If anything, perhaps this helps us see the inverse perspective, to see through the grandeur of terms like king and army and fleet to the more primal, brutal, and yet ordinary violence that that language glamorizes. It's not that there's a difference between possibly a few dozen islanders injuring and killing each other over who gets a claim on one half of that island, and the English army riding against the Norman invaders at Hastings, one grubby and petty, and the other grand and noble. Rather, they're fundamentally the same scenario, just at different scales. I suppose that's kind of the same idea that presents Cain and Abel as the prefiguration not just of murder, but of warfare as well, and put that way it feels a bit reductive, does it only feel reductive because we have millennia of cultural traditions insisting that warfare should be appreciated differently from quotidian violence? I don't know. That's heavy stuff for Valentine's Day episode, though maybe there is a kind of connection there, inasmuch as we can feel the perception of scale breaking down in how we experience our own love stories, where two ordinary people's ordinary romance is felt as grandly as any fairy tale courtship of prince and princess and common betrayals can have the sting of great tragedies. Well, let's move on to our mystery word. Our word today is one suitable for a medieval valentine. It is avenant. A-V-E-N-A-U-N-T, avenant. It's a nice romantic-sounding word, which is appropriate because it appears in Middle English romances. So, one sense of this word, when applied to human beings, is uh, becoming, comely. Chaucer uses it in his translation of the Romance of the Rose to describe the figure of Lady Courtesy. Clear brown she was, and thereto bright, of face and body avenant. I wot no lady so pleasant. She wherein worthy for to ben, an empress or crowned quen. The etymology of avenant draws our attention to some interesting features of our vocabulary of attraction. Avenant derives from the old French verb avenir, itself from Latin advenire, meaning to come or arrive, to happen, to succeed, or, going a little further, to suit, to befit, or to become, as in 
that outfit becomes you. In earlier appearances, we find it describing useful things, as in this example from a late 13th century Middle English romance, that of King Alessander, where in a catalogue of monstrous races, we find one described as follows. They no haveth camel, no oliphant, no cow, no horse, avenant. So there you see the sense of fitting, suitable, appropriate. In Old French, avenant applied to food meant suitable for consumption, uh, not terribly sexy. Or maybe it, it is. I don't know. Your mileage may vary. Anyway, there's something about proximity and usefulness that's connected, and then between usefulness and attractiveness that carries the same words from a vocabulary of utility and capability to the vocabulary of love and beauty. As for proximity and usefulness, we see that even in a word like fitting, something that fits well, fits closely. And fit as an adjective now both means in good physical condition and physically attractive. And handsome has a similar history. It starts in the same sphere as handy, which can mean nearby, at hand, uh, as well as useful. A handy person is skillful or dexterous, and then someone who is handsome is originally also capable, effective, and that converts right on over to meaning physically attractive. Now, beauty is a different linguistic animal altogether. It does not have a foot in usefulness. Beauty comes into English from French beau, which comes from the Latin bellus, which means beautiful, pleasant, charming, a sphere of words related to giving pleasure, not doing work. There is obviously a history of attitudes towards gender revealed in our gendered uses of beautiful and handsome. But hey, now we have another option. Who needs to be beautiful, an object of pleasure, subject to the gaze of others, when you can be like Lady Courtesy, Avenant? Speaking of Avenant personages, I'd like to thank our recent new and returning Patreon supporters. Thank you, Miles, Bruno, John, Caroline, and Emily. Your support really does help the show. Anyone can join these august ranks by contributing as little as a dollar a month to Medieval Death Trip at Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. And you can follow us on Twitter at mdtpodcast or Instagram at medievaldeathtrip, all one word. And if you'd like more information about this and every episode, including bibliographic references for our texts, you can find that at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, where you can also email me. I'm Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. I'll be back next time with a blockbuster of a 100th episode. Until then, happy Valentine's Day. Remember to keep an eye on your siblings, especially if you happen to hold a noble title. And thanks for listening. <laughs>